0: Uh, My name is Luke. I uh, serve on the leadership team here at Renewal. Occasionally, I also share in the teaching. Today is one of those days. Uh, Pastor Derek is away today. He is serving with another church in our city. We love that. We love to kind of share uh, the the talent and skills that we've got here, and I get to teach, so everybody wins, right? Um, We're we're, uh, in the book of Ephesians, and um, as I was reading through this and studying through this and preparing for this, I just thought, do you ever look through your news feed, turn on the television, read a paper, whatever, do you ever just step back and think, there's got to be a better way, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? There, there's there got to be a better way to do society. I mean, this is a wreck, right? I mean, you could take news... Uh, headlines just from this week, you, you know, the absurdity or the, the outrage of a sitcom star and comments on social media, or the, the, the mundane tariffs on aluminum, or the, 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 the absurd idea that a parent has to take his son to, to court to get him out of the basement, right? It, or the tragic that we have people, friends of ours, some of our, our, our friends and, and, and people we know that are facing terror in northern Nigeria or the endless string of school shootings. I mean, it just goes on and on and on just from the last couple of weeks. And do you ever just look at all of that and you think, there's got to be a better way to do society? Yes, I see nods. I think that. Listen, we're in the book of Ephesians and we've been studying this for a while. We're in chapter six today and starting a new chapter, it's a good time to talk, to just give a fast review of where we've been. Ephesians can be divided quickly into two parts into chapters one through three and chapters four through six. Chapters one through three cover the foundation, this, this like baseline level, who Jesus is, what he's done, why it matters. This is the core tenets or, of the doctrine of Christianity are there. You know, like God saved people by grace through faith. God has, has had this plan since the beginning of time. The be- since In the fullness of time, uh, verse uh, 10 in chapter one says, to unite all things himself in heaven and on earth. This this great vision statement, right? So you got chapters 1 through 3 that lay the foundation, and then chapters 4 through 6 are the so what part of the document, right? They're they're like, okay, so now what? So we have Jesus and who he is and what he's done, and then chapters 4 through 6 say, so how do we then live, right? And this is what I'm getting at. Chapters 4 through 6 of the book of Ephesians is what we need. It's the new way to do society, it's the it's the grand Christian vision for life. It is a new and better charter for society. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. If you think about great charters throughout history, a lot of them are very brief, right? Uh, um, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Emancipation Proclamation—just a few from our own country, right? They're very brief, but they lay out a vision for how life can be better and different. Listen, Ephesians chapters four through six lay out a better, a new way to do society. This is what we need. I have a friend, um, a good friend in, in Lagos, Nigeria. His name is Fimi Ashenui. He's a pastor in a church, a church plant there that, that we're partnered with here, and he's terrific. He actually talks about this passage and a little bit. I've heard him tell a story, and I laugh because I love hearing insight from a, a different place, a different culture, and a, a different way of viewing it that I wouldn't have thought of, right? He looks at some of these verses in Ephesians and he actually says, um, you know, it might be last week, for example, we studied uh, husbands and wives, the the verses that precede where we're going to be today. And he said, Femi says, it might be a good idea for a husband to treat his wife well so that she doesn't poison his food, (laughs) right? And I'm like, that's probably true. That's a good reason. That's a good reason. I didn't think of that reason, but it's a good one. And that's Femi's point. Actually, what Femi is getting at, he's like, it's a good, there are lots of good reasons, perhaps, to treat your wife well. Or today we're going to learn about parenting and children. There might be lots of good reasons. Maybe you don't want your kid to be a delinquent. There's good reasons to, not be, to be a good parent, right? None of those are the reasons, the fundamental reason that the Bible gives us here. The fundamental reason is that he, <laughs> we are applying chapters one through three, what Jesus has done, who he is, it's a, applying it to life. So the first, before we go any further, we need to recognize that what we're going to read today is part of this grand vision for life. This, this new and better Christian charter, it is taking who Jesus is, what he has done, and it applying it, the good news about him, applying the gospel to life. Do you see? This is, this is so much bigger so much greater than something else. And and if we read, we're going to be in chapter 6. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles. Turn on your Bibles, whichever one is better. Yeah, it wasn't funny. It was a dad joke. Uh, Turn in your Bibles, uh, chapter 6, verse 1. If we miss that this is part of a grand charter for life, a new and better way to live, then we will read this and we'll be like, "Oh, that's some neat little parenting advice like you might read on a blog." And we would miss it. This is part of something bigger. Right? So, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we got only got 4 verses today, and that means we get to dig deep. Okay? So, let's do this if you're able, let's stand as I read. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It says, "Children, obey your parents in the Lord." For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. You guys may have a seat. It's the church's job as a whole, what Paul is saying as a whole, it's the church's job as we discussed, to apply the gospel to life. And this takes place in a number of ways. Uh, One of the ways is is here with the relationship between children and parents. But we need to to capture a little bit of this context. So last week we looked at husbands and wives. About 10 verses before what we read today is verse 21 of chapter 5. And it says something very simple, but it sets up the next 20 or so verses. Okay, so if you have your Bible, you can look at it. If you don't, uh, that's okay. I'll read it. Chapter 21, or I'm sorry, verse 21 of chapter 5 says this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so that's, that's that's the first statement that then lays out the next 20 verses. Paul gives examples, the Apostle Paul who wrote this to the Ephesian church, he gives examples of what that looks like. Right? So you have this grand statement, the Christian, the church in life is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that look like? Because we're all different. We have different roles and we do different things. We're in different ages and all kinds of things. And Paul says, here's what it looks like. He says, wives, what does it look like for you to submit to Christ out of reverence? It looks like respecting your husband. Husbands, what does it look like for you to, what does submission look like out of reverence for Christ? It looks like sacrificing on behalf of your wife. Next week, we'll look at employees and employers, right? What does is, what is submission out of reverence for Christ look like for the employee? Sincere service. <laughs> what does submission uh, out of reverence for Christ look like for the employer? Remembering who their boss is and not never ever lording their power over their employees. You see, this verse, chap- uh, verse 21 of chapter five, gives is, is the is the flagship verse for the next 20 verses. And, and Paul shakes all of that out and says, this is how this submission out of reverence to Christ looks for different people in different places with different roles. Today, we're looking at children. Today, we're looking at children, and right out of the gate, Paul says something that that is so revolutionary, that is so radical. It's that first word, children. Now, this is what I mean by that. This would have been so revolutionary in Paul's day. Why? Why? Because the great Apostle Paul writes a letter to one of the premier churches in the known world and addresses directly the children. That is revolutionary. This, this is an, an era and an age when there was so much deference and respect given to the older generation. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't address the children, let alone like directly maybe, maybe indirectly through their parents or through their grandparents but directly just naming them in the letter even today in a a culture that's much more egalitarian it would be unusual to imagine a a great Christian leader writing a letter to Renewal and saying hey kids right how much more so in in Paul's day and so right out of the gate when we get to how do children and parents relate to each other Paul is doing something that is revolutionary in his day he is addressing children first. He is saying what Paul has been saying throughout this letter, that everyone, everyone, is even and maybe especially those whose society treats us as lesser or as inferior, everyone is created in the same image, image of God. Now listen, this is a the, the theme throughout the letter. If you remember in chapter 2, there are two groups. There's kind of ethnic insiders and ethnic outsiders, the Jews and the Gentiles. Who does Paul address first? The outsiders. Last week, there are husbands and wives. Who does Paul address first in the first century in a patriarchal culture? The wives. This week, who does he address first? The children. Next week, when we look at employees and employers, who is he going to address first? Employees. Do you see? He is doing something revolutionary, very radical. And this is important for us to know. It's not just like, oh, that's an interesting point. This is important because many of us, some of you right now, find Christianity, certain tenets of Christianity, interesting, right? When when Derek talks about, Pastor Derek talks about um, that Christianity, the Christian doctrine, is that we work from God's approval rather than for God's approval. Man, that sounds good, right? There are other parts that we encounter in the Bible that don't sound so good, and often they are ethical standards outlined for how we should live. You see what I'm getting at? Now, If Paul is radical in the first century, what that means is, is that we can never ever say, well, that was just a first century thing and it doesn't apply to today. Because what Paul is getting at here is not a first century thing. This is not a teaching from the first century that's trickled down to the 21st century. No, no, no. This is a teaching from God for the first century and for the 21st century. This is so important. It's it's so radical. It was radical in Paul's day and it is radical in our day. And often the things that offended the people in Paul's day are the things that we are okay with and vice versa. The things that offend us are the things that they were okay with. Do You see, this is something different. This isn't merely an ancient text. It's just we happen to have still. No, no, no. This is the Christian vision for life. This is a new and better charter for how to live, how to do society. It is nothing less Paul continues here. He says, uh, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's interesting. He says, for this is right. What is he doing? He's appealing. It's like common sense. (laughs) Overwhelmingly, with few exceptions, overwhelmingly, people generally are like, yeah, it's good for kids to obey their parents, you know, for the most part. Like this makes the world better. So Paul appeals to this this common sense, for this is right. And then verse 2, what does he do? He goes... In to the explicit thing, the Christian doctrine. He cites, did you notice verse 2, honor your father and mother? It's in quotes. He's citing the fifth commandment from the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise, he says. And then he goes on, he quotes, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So Verse one, he appeals to common sense, kind of a universal understanding. Verse two, he appeals to Christian understanding. Like he goes, he goes deeper. Now, here's the point: verse one, he had what, what was what was common, what was right. Verse two, he has what is better. I, I I want to spend just a minute here because Christianity is not just a list of moral endeavors or implications, right? It's not just like moralism, like do the right thing. I, I mean, there's that, but it's, it's, it's not less than that. It's just way more than that. It's something better. Do you see? Honor your, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. When, when, when the Bible outlines ethical standards, it's because they're better. <laughs> they're better for us. The, the, the whole the whole premise of the talk today is what? That there has to be a better way to do society. And Paul is getting at that. There's a man named uh, Dick Lucas. Was. He's, he's since passed. He was a great preacher in the UK. He, good, tremendous Bible scholar too. He looks at this verse. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well, well with you. And that you may live long in the land. He looks at that. And he says, the way Paul is using this here. What is he doing? Dick Lucas says, He would summarize it like this, children, honor your past and you will have a future. Children, honor your past and you will have a future. This is so wonderful. You know, I have a friend um, in the Mexico City Valley. He's been, he's a doctor, a physician. He's been working at an orphanage for decades. Tremendously faithful. I have an incredible amount of respect for him because it's just thankless work. It's an orphanage that specializes in kind of hardest cases. They take preteens and teens that are parts of street gangs, like kid gangs, off the street. You try to get them in a children's home and, and rehabilitate them into society. You want to talk about hard work. So, Dr. Noe, I, I was talking to him one time, and I just asked him, I said, you know, what is the success rate of the children's home? Of you know, successfully rehabilitating kids into society. And as soon as I asked, I realized it was kind of an insensitive question. I didn't mean it that way, but I just saw his face fall. He said, Luke, our success rate is terrible. It is so rare to take a kid from the street and rehabilitate them successfully and see them be successful through adulthood. It almost never happens, but we do it anyway because it's important. Now what is Dr. Noé getting at? He is saying the inverse of what Paul is saying. Paul says, children, honor your, honor your past and you will have a future. And Dr. Noé is working with kids who have no meaningful connection to their past. No meaningful connection to the generation before them. And guess what? They literally have no future. Uh, they, they literally, it will not go well for them. They will not live long in the land. Most of them will die young. Do you see? what Paul is saying is true. What the, what the Old Testament commandment is true. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Honor your past and you will have a future. The Christian vision for life, the Christian charter for society is something so different. Throughout the ages, generations are at odds with one another, aren't they? Everywhere I go, everywhere every generation I could think of, the old folks, it's like comically predictable. You can hear the older generation talking with contempt about the foolishness of the younger generation. And you can hear the younger, younger generation talking with disdain about the stodgy old ways of the older generation. Right? I, I've done it. Both ways. Paul says here that the Christian charter for society has no generation gap. Imagine. Imagine past in future, united, connected, in a, in a meaningful way, in a way that it's like the, the, the future recognizes that with, without the past, they would have no future. The, the past recognizes that without investing in the future, there are no future pasts. Do you see? R.W. Dale, uh, another UK theologian, late 19th century, he wrote, he wrote a great observation. He said, people, we never feel we never feel that we can dispense with the experience of the past except in the region of political, social, and religious experience. Except in the re- region of social and religious experience. We are content to learn from our fathers how to build houses, how to cultivate the ground, how to steer ships. For what improvements we may be able to make in house building, and agriculture, and navigation, we are grateful. But we know that we have learned far more than we have discovered. In such things as these, we are de- if we are determined in these things to neglect all of the past and start afresh for ourselves every generation, we would impoverish our resources and render all progress impossible. In short, if I thought of the past with contempt, I should think of the future with despair. Now, what R.W. Dale is getting at is True. In all of these spheres, in all of our life, we, we, we gladly stand on the shoulders of people who have gone before us. None of us, none of you would go to a surgeon and sit across from her, his or her desk and, and hear, hear them say, yes, we'll do surgery. It's scheduled for Monday. By the way, I didn't go to med school. I threw away all of my books because I wanted to learn it all myself. You wouldn't go under the knife. And they're like, it's okay. I learn a little bit more every time I cut somebody open you wouldn't do it. We stand on the past in every realm except for some reason. If it comes to the social and the religious, people think, I'm going to figure it out for myself. It's absurd. It is asinine. It makes no sense. Of course, of course, we need the past if we're going to make a new and better society. Children, honor, your past, and you will have a future. Paul moves on to parents. Verse 4. How does it start? Go ahead and look there again with me. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, Paul explicitly states fathers here. All of the scholarship that I can find on the subject says that we're speaking to both parents. In the whole context, you got kids and parents. But Paul picks out fathers for this negative, this negative command, don't. Why? Again, because of the first century baggage that was around. In, in, in Paul's day, what would have been happening is like fathers are like, I do what I want, they're my kids. It provoke. Who cares if it provokes them? I'm the dad, right? And and Paul steps out, and and the first thing he says is what fathers should stop doing is provoking their children to anger. There's a companion passage in Colossians, also written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, where he says, don't provoke your children, but he also gives why, lest they become discouraged. You see, an overbearing parent, somebody who just is, rails... Who, who is quick to anger, who, who parents in such a way so as to put kids in their place or to show who's boss. Do you know what I mean? This kind of parent drives their children to despair, to anger, to bitterness. And Paul says, this is not part of the new and better charter for society. Paul is appealing to tenderness, kindness, a parent in the church with their children, an aunt or an uncle with nieces and nephews, a grandparent with grandchildren. These people are, are to appeal to tenderness, to, to like compassion, right? It's, it's hard. It's hard work. You, you got to get down on the level of a child and, and like know who they are. They are a person. They are an individual. You need to tailor parenting to who they are and to their needs. You need to be listening as you're speaking. This is, this is difficult. But this is what Paul is calling fathers in the first century to do. Fathers who are from a very, very uh, patriarchal place and time. How much more for us, right? Tenderness. There's actually a recent film, Lady Bird. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's, it was miserable, I thought. But anyway, <laughs> the story is this. It's an overbearing parent crushing her daughter. This is real. Don't provoke your children lest they despair, lest they become embittered. Don't exasperate them. Know them and understand them and and speak to them. But Paul doesn't stop there. Did you notice that? He continues, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And yet again, we are confronted with a message that is neither from the first century nor from the 21st century. You see, today it's much, much much easier for us to say, yes, I agree, parents should not be overbearing, they should not be dictators. It is much, much harder as a rule for us to say parents should discipline. It was the inverse in the first century. This is neither a first century (laughs) charter nor a 21st century charter. This is a charter from God for a new and better way to live. Parents must discipline and instruct their kids in the Lord. Discipline is part of it. Discipline without tenderness Discipline without tenderness produces embittered despair. Tenderness without discipline produces entitled brats. <laughs> you have to have both. And the Christian vision is the only thing that I know that isn't out on a wing somewhere. It's just saying you, you have both. You know your kids. You treat them as individuals. You, you, you understand them. You seek to have compassion for them. And at the same time, you give clear and strong instruction and, and understandable discipline to them. You guide them. A kid, a, a kid is an individual, as I mentioned, a real person who you need to have compassion with. But a kid is also, he comes out of the womb an egotistical maniac. It's true. A, a kid, by the time they're two and a half, are pros in being selfish. They need instruction and discipline. They need tenderness and compassion. All of us are children of someone. Doesn't this ring true to you? You need both. Your kids need both. Your nieces and nephews need both. They need strength and tenderness. The Christian has experienced this personally, haven't we? If you are a believer, profound kindness from the Almighty God. The kind of kindness that leads us to repentance. And yet, and yet, unimaginable strength and power that will not abide with evil. Do you see, when parents take on this kind of parenting that's both tender and strong, they are making a school for their children to know who God is. Yes, it will go well with them. Yes, they will live long in the land. But ever so much more, they will know who God is. They will begin to perceive of how this majestic, magisterial being can exist this one who has tenderness and strength in the same person the, the tenderness and strength that is seen explicitly on the cross it's, it's, it's magnificent I don't have language I'm like searching for words that are good enough aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents we can put kids to school on who God is the one who is. there's no one like him Which brings me to the last point, that last little phrase. What is it? Of the Lord. Did you catch that? Parenting is hard. All of the energy and resources and time, all of the the where's and what's and how's and when's that you're trying to direct kids and guide kids through, man, in all of that, spend at least... And, and even more time on the who. Teach your kids who God is. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what the book of Ephesians is saying to the church in Ephesus. That's what's saying to the church in Chicago. Teach your kids who God is. Do you dream more about your kids' future careers or more about their future relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you fear more for your, for your kid's safety or for your kid's salvation? Yes. Do you see? There's a difference. There's something fundamentally different about Christian parenting. We are teaching, we are taking our kids to school on who this God is and what he has done. It's the reason, it's the reason that Paul li- does the same thing with us in the book of Ephesians. He spends the first three chapters telling us who God is and what he has done and why it matters. And then he tells us how to live. That's what we do as parents. We tell our kids who God is. Do you tell your children that you love them? I know a lot of you guys, yeah, you do. But when you tell them that you love them, do you also say, let me tell you about somebody who loves you so much, there's nothing you could do to make him love you less or to make him love you more. It's wonderful. Do you tell your kids, do you teach your children about staying out of trouble? Yeah, if you're a parent, I hope so. But do you also say, listen, staying out of trouble is also about the decisions, the decisions you make will affect how much you love God or how little you love God? You see, God's love is absolute. There's nothing they could do to make God love, love them less or more. There's lots that they could do, the kids could do, to love God less or more. Their decisions matter. They resonate in eternity. Do you teach your kids about sex? It's increasingly infrequent, infrequent that parents teach their kids about sex. I hope that you do. But more than that, do you teach your kids about the Christian vision for sex? That, it, that there is covenant between man and woman in marriage? And more than that, that this covenant is just a dim reflection of the intimacy and joy that Jesus experiences with his church. Do you teach your kids about body image? I hope so. But do so teaching them that they are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Do you teach your kids about how to stand up for themselves? Do. But do so teaching them about the one who already stood up for them. Do you teach your kids about the dangers of materialism. I hope so. But teach them also about the one who has lavished generously upon them. Do you teach your kids about temptation? Man, I hope so. But be honest with them. Give them the whole picture. There are external temptations, but there is an internal temptation as well. They need someone to deal with their own sinful nature. Man, grown-ups need to know this too. Talk about... (laughs) blowing your worldview open whenever you're like oh I'm part of the problem too this is the Christian doctrine do you teach your kids about the poor and the marginalized good but teach them also about the one who became poor for them I could go on seize every moment that you can with the kids in your life and around you and tell them who God is There's no message, there's nothing more important to them. It is so much more important than who they will marry, than where they will go to college, than what career they will pick. It's so much more important because it affects all of those other decisions. It sets the trajectory for all of that other stuff. I am, I'm a parent myself. Uh, so I, I understand personally, like, listening to all this stuff, it's like, it uh, does two things to me. Maybe, it's, maybe you're the same. On the one hand, I, I kind of get stirred up. I'm like, yes, this sounds awesome. A new and better charter for society. On the other hand, I'm like, dang, that sounds hard. <laughs> right? Parenting is hard. I've got two small words. One is, is simply this. Parenting is hard anyway. And it is so much easier according to the new and better charter for society. That's literally true. And here's why. Because the new and better charter for society, we have a foundation to draw on. We have Ephesians 1 through 3. It's not just chapters 4 through 6. We have have this sublime example in Christ to think about, to consider. That's what makes it possible. And the other thing is just much, much more practical we wanted to provide you guys with a tool. You got nieces, nephews, you got kids, you got grandkids, whatever. These are out on the, um, the table in the foyer. Pick one of these up, we'll probably run out, that's okay. Fill out a connect card and we'll email you a PDF of all of this and most of us use our devices anyway. This is a summer family activity guide. It's just a way to get started. Perhaps you're a parent and as I've gone through some of this stuff you're like, I have never done any of that stuff with my kids. Just start. Just start. And this it has a ton of activities. Not just go to the library, go to the museum, but how to do that and to draw God into it. Do you see? How to have a family craft night and talk about something that Jesus has done and accomplished for your kids. So pick one of those up. Church, apply the gospel to life. Children, honor your past and you will have a future. Parents, don't stop with how and what teach your kids who God is. It's amazing. Uh, In Ephesians, we have the Christian at home. We have the Christian at work. We have the Christian at church. We have the Christian with neighbors and friends. We have the Christian crossing ethnic lines and boundaries. We have the Christian in sex. We have the Christian in food and drink. We have nothing less than a new and better charter for society. Let me pray for us.